everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Bloomberg Studio 1.0. You may know Steve Ballmer these days as the owner of the LA Clippers, bringing his trademark energy and enthusiasm from the boardroom to the basketball court. Before buying the Clips, Ballmer ran Microsoft for 14 years. You might recall that famous moment when he jumped around on stage, chanting developers, 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 clapping his hands and punching the air with his fist over and over again. He also tripled the company's revenue to $78 billion and more than doubled profits to $22 billion. Yet Microsoft's stock languished while Bomber was in charge, and he left the company in 2014. He got his start at Microsoft more than three decades before that, as employee number 30, personally recruited and hired by co-founder Bill Gates. In this episode, he opens up about his challenging relationship with Gates for the very first time since leaving the company, as well as his biggest successes regrets, and what he would have done differently. Here's my conversation with Steve Ballmer, former CEO of Microsoft, Ballmer Group co-founder, and one of the most expressive guys on the basketball court. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. It's thanks great to have you me. here. Yeah, thanks, Emma. So I heard a rumor about you that I couldn't possibly believe to be true, which was that you were shy growing up. <laughs> That's a true rumor. That's true. That is absolutely a true so, rumor. So tell me about this. When I was a little kid, you know, if, uh, if somebody's dad was at home, if I didn't know the people, I mean, literally, I'd sit out in the car sometimes because I'd be so nervous and so shy. When I got to college, a friend of mine, he describes it this way. Hi, I'm Steve Ballmer. My hand <laughs> is sweaty because I'm so nervous to meet you. So I guess you could say over time that's changed. So it has changed quite considerably. I mean, you brought life to software conferences that will never be seen again. So where did that guy come from? That's a very good question. Uh, I would say there was a breakthrough for me, literally. I believe this when I was football manager at Harvard. And that's a very intimidating thing to get up in front of 100 football players. Manager's not the loftiest position. And you, you know, hey, listen up a minute. And you have to speak between, you know, before a pretty unruly group of 100 guys. And that's where I kind of broke through. So you were born in Detroit. Your dad worked at Ford. You excelled in math and science even early on. And then at Harvard, you... Uh, some other kid named Bill Gates apparently lived down the hall. That's correct. Right? And you were better at math than him. I think that's that's an <laughs> extreme way to say it. On the Putnam Prize competition, which was kind of the big college math competition, I did beat him our sophomore year. So how did you get to know Bill? What was your relationship like in school? We got to know each other, ate you know, lunch and dinner some, took a math class together and brainstormed a little bit about what he was doing when he started Microsoft. About a year after the company moved to Seattle, Bill called up, I was at Stanford Business School, and hey, we could really use a guy like you, blah, blah, blah. So you joined Microsoft in 1980. Yep. You were the 30th employee. And wasn't there a time during those first few weeks where you were thinking, I don't know if this place is for me, maybe I should quit. Bill and I were arguing. I wanted to add a bunch of people. Bill didn't want to add them. He said to me, Steve, you're going to bankrupt this place. And uh, so I thought, well, why did I drop out of school? And Bill and his dad did take me out, and that's where at least I make up in my head. Bill invented this computer on every desk and in every home. He said something like, Steve, you don't get it. We're going to put a computer on every desk and in every home. And 
I bought into it and stayed a total of almost 34 years. You were his top lieutenant, right? And then you became CEO in 2000. You uh, tripled Microsoft's revenue. What was it like taking over from a founder CEO? People like to focus in on Bill was CEO, you were CEO. This was kind of like my baby, my baby and Bill's baby. And we were growing it and nurturing it. He was kind of like the senior partner. I was the junior partner. If it's in the raising of children, I would say he was more like, you know, <laughs> mom gets to decide more than dad. But, you know, um, so I've, I have, I take great satisfaction in the things we accomplished throughout the time, not just when I became CEO. When I became CEO, we had a very miserable year. Uh, Bill didn't know how to work for anybody, and I didn't know how to manage Bill. I'm not sure I ever learned the latter. Uh, things lightened up some, and then I would say my life changed a lot in 2008 when Bill actually left the company. Mm. How uh, so? At that, Bill had asked me, he said, look, I'm happy to help you anyway, but I don't want you to need me, so I can come and go if you want me, great, but I have another life. And in a sense, I finally felt like, okay, we're not partners anymore. I have to take accountability. And I think I probably did some of my very best work at the company after Bill left, actually. Really? Like what? Pushed us into Bing, sustained that investment. You know, that's really where we got into the cloud. We started what's now Office 365 in Azure. After Bill left, you know, we pushed into the hardware business with Surface, uh, et cetera. And now... Uh, Satya Nadella, my successor, is sort of taking things there to infinity and beyond, if you will. How do you feel about being asked about your successes and your failures? What you're most proud of? What you're least proud of? You know, at this stage, uh, I'm almost uh, three years out. It's ancient history. Did I, you know, have a lot of success? Yeah. Are there some things I wish I'd done differently? Of course. I started a company that had about two and a half million of revenue and 30 people. And I left a company that had uh, $22 billion in profit. And I feel like that net-net, pretty good success. What's your relationship with Bill like today? Yeah, we've kind of drifted, drifted apart. Uh, he's got his life. I sort of have mine. Microsoft was kind of the, uh, the thing that really bound us. You know, we started off as friends, but then really got quite enmeshed around Microsoft. And you know, since, the, since I've gone, you know, we really uh, have drifted a little bit. You know, he wasn't happy about when you left, you left suddenly, or, you know, what really happened? Well, I mean, it was definitely a, you know, not a simple thing for either one of us. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, that at the end of the day, there are probably two things. A little bit of a difference in opinion on the strategic direction of the company, which I think is, is a challenge. And then number two, you know, he and I had kind of always had uh, what I would call uh, brotherly relationship in the good in the good parts and the bad parts and I just think uh, towards the end that was that was a bit more difficult than not particularly with the strategic direction change and um, you know the stock price wasn't going anything so the, anywhere so the rest of the board felt pressure despite the fact that profits were ch -ch 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 -ch, uh, going up so I think you had kind of a combustible situation and does it ever uh, bother you on. don't you don't get credit for that uh, sure and no. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, I have the great sort of comfort of knowing what I did and feeling good about myself and everything else doesn't really matter. Where did you want to take the company? Where did he want to take the company? I think there was a fundamental disagreement about how important it was to be in the hardware business. Mm. Uh, I had pushed Surface. The board had been a little, a little reluctant in supporting it. And then 
things came to a climax around what to do about the phone business. Satya Nadella was on stage recently where he said missing the mobile phone was one of the biggest mistakes in Microsoft's history. What would you have done differently? Oh, when I would it comes have done things. I would have moved into the hardware business faster and recognized that what we had in the PC where there was a separation of chips, systems, and software wasn't largely going to reproduce itself uh, in the mobile world. I wish I'd thought about the model of subsidizing phones through the operators. You know, people like to point to this quote where I said iPhones will never sell. It was because the price of six or $700 was too high, and there was business model innovation by Apple to get it essentially built into the monthly cell phone bill. We should have been in the hardware business sooner in the phone case, and we were still suffering uh, what I would call some of the effects of uh, our Vista release of Windows, which sucked up a huge amount of resource for a much longer period of time than it should have because we stumbled over it. And when you have a lot of your best engineers sort of in a sense being non-productive for a while, it really uh, takes a toll. Would you have bought Nokia? I certainly wanted to buy Nokia. The board at first disagreed with that and then came back and said the company should should go ahead even though I had decided to to leave. I think it was, if executed in a certain way, I think it made a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. A company chose to go another direction, and that's you know that's that's the decision the company made. Do you think they're wrong? I see the stock price flying <laughs> sky high, and all you can say is the market certainly certainly agrees with the the direction Satya's taking the company, and I'm super excited about that. How do you think Satya's doing? I think he's doing a fantastic job. He's really pushed on the cloud. He's really building on the foundation of machine learning and artificial intelligence. I consider the fact that revenues and profits have not been down. They've been pretty flat, actually. But that's important to maintain as he re-gears the place. Uh, so, you know, I, he has my, certainly, unconditional support. He's been more open to partnerships than you seem to be. Is that the right strategy? No, I, I have no... Uh, quibbles with anything he's done from a, from an open, call it an openness standpoint. I think that's a better way of saying. It. Should Azure run open source software? Absolutely. Uh, is it easier for Satya to communicate that than it ever would have been me because I was identified as a competitor? Sure. And he's taking advantage of it. And he's doing the right stuff. May 2014, you bought the Clippers for two billion dollars. How does life as the owner of a basketball team compare to life at Microsoft? Well, it's completely different. So, <laughs> so comparing them may not be the most uh, interesting or valuable thing to do. I love the game. I love seeing us go out there and win. Uh, but there's aspects to the job as well. How do I, you know, sort of properly interact with our coach, with our basketball staff, with our players? What's my role? I try to make sure I'm a positive force to our players, that I ask hard questions of our basketball staff. We have big decisions in front of us. An arena, where do we go in terms of changing the way sports is consumed using digital techniques? Not just OTT, but virtual reality and, and live statistics. In addition to, you know, hey, it's the season. Let's go win some ball games. <laughs> so, uh, what are your hopes for a new season? And not to talk smack, but how can you beat the Warriors this year? I don't know. I watched the Spurs beat the Warriors <laughs> by 25 <laughs> points in their opening game. It's kind of like what we say. Anybody can beat anybody on any given night. That said, the Cavs and the Warriors are still favored to get to the finals for the third year in the row. Sure. Does the league have a competitiveness problem, and do they need to fix it? 
I think our league is actually pretty competitive uh, over time. But in any given year, you know, there are players who are different make, difference makers. I think it is tougher to win it all if you don't have at least one and probably two of those difference makers. Can the Clippers ever dislodge the Lakers as L.A.'s favorite team? If we establish a consistent pattern of winning, which we have over the last several years, we better take down a championship or two if we want to replace the Lakers. How is the search for the new arena going? We're and searching. You know, that's one of the things we'll take a look at before we're all done. First question is, what's out there for, for available land? What would it look like to build the building? I mean, we have some good confidence that we'll find land, that we can build a building at a good price. I am very interested in the building of an arena. But before all said and done, I'm sure we'll talk to the Staples guy. The other thing I can tell you is, I don't think it ever makes sense to enter a renegotiation with a landlord unless you have an option. Right. So we will have an option, and it could be a very exciting one. Let's talk about your class that you're teaching now, because you are drilling down on government. Yeah, when I retired in uh, early 14, uh, my wife and I really, st she's been working for 10 plus years on issues of child welfare and what does it take to help support children who grow up in tougher circumstances. I retire and she says, okay now, you're my partner. And I said, come on, the government takes care of that. All we have to do is pay our taxes correctly. And she said, no, we can do better than that. I've put 10 years in. And so we locked on two things. Number one, uh, we locked in on a focus on kids who were born in communities where their probability of living the American dream, having that sense of upside, is very limited. But why the government project? Because my wife challenged me. I said, okay, I gotta figure out really what government does. How much money does it take in? What does it put out? How is it working? And eventually came the idea, what we needed to do was to create something like a 10K or an investor presentation, if you will. We're hoping to publish uh, early 2017. What are the most troubling things you've found so far about the numbers? Government is actually making good progress and good improvements in many ways. I was surprised how good I felt. Not perfect, but much better about government and the taxes. And I came away with two big things. Number one, what I call the savings programs, not the transfers and the entitlements, the savings programs, Social Security and Medicare, we have to put aside enough revenue and enough expense to match. Those things have lost money every year since 1980. Second thing uh, we have to do consequently then, that'll help us get the debt under control. But the third thing, which really uh, jives with what my wife said is, there are communities of people, let's say you're born in the bottom 20%. Mm -hmm. uh, if life was perfect, there'd be a 20% chance you stay in the bottom 20%. Mm -hmm. The truth is there are communities of people where that number's over 50%. Mm -hmm. Though that's just not okay. Every kid should at least have the opportunity. What does it take to, uh, for government and for us as people with philanthropic and civic resources, what kinds of investments in not-for-profits and government programs, how does philanthropy partner with government? So it's been, uh, been interesting, but when you look at government, a lot of things going well, mm -hmm. but some things really not. The work that you're doing with your wife in philanthropy has been compared to what Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan are doing with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. You know, talk to me a little bit about where you're going, where you're leaning, who you're looking to help. Kids who are born 
with a very low likelihood of ever uh, moving up from where their parents were economically. Uh, that's just, it's not, it just doesn't, it's not consistent with America. It's just not right. There's some great not-for-profits doing great work. We are trying to find the best of those who operate nationally and support them. That's number one. Number two, we are very bullish on what they call place-based strategies, where you bring a community together and you challenge everybody, the schools, everybody. Number three, we're going to focus in on certain cities. The ones we have connection to are Seattle, because we live there, LA, because I own a basketball, we own a basketball team there, and Detroit, because I grew up there. So we will have uh, geographic focus. You mentioned you can never make the math work on Salesforce. Never, ever, ever, ever. What do you mean by that? It's too expensive. I mean, it's a fine company. I, I, you know, is it a great company? I don't know. It's a fine company. But in my opinion, relative to earnings potential, it is dramatically overpriced. That's just my opinion. Do you think they're headed for a disaster or something? The company's headed for a disaster. In, in my worldview, at some point in time, the market will ask companies to make profits commensurate with their market cap. Now, Amazon doesn't either. Uh, they have great potential. It's a great company, great company. Uh, when will the market demand that? Can't say. When will it demand it from Salesforce? Can't say. Is Amazon getting a pass from Wall Street? They are, because people, I think, believe powerfully enough in the future of earnings. But you can't tell me over the long run earnings and market cap are, are divorced. That sort of runs fundamental to my basic view in, in capitalism and the way it works. We can talk about Twitter, because you're still an investor in Twitter, sure. as I understand it. At the time, uh, when you announced a stake, it was 4%. Do you still own as many shares in Twitter as you used to? But I think it's fair to say I remain a, a large investor in Twitter. So what do you think about what they're going through now? First of all, I think Twitter is an irreproducible asset. I don't think there's any vehicle that lets you speak broadly to a mass audience any better than Twitter. Uh, could the product be easier to use? Of course, the product could be easier to use, and I think that's an important area. So do, do you see Twitter having a future as an independent company? I think Twitter would be great as an independent company, and I'm sure there are acquisitions that would also make sense for uh, the company, the product, and shareholders. What about going private? Going private is a distraction. I, you know, in my opinion, I think the company would be better served to put its energy into innovation than all of the work it would take to go private. What about Jack Dorsey having his two jobs? Do you think that's a good setup? I think it's easy to question. People would obviously, including me, like more out of Twitter. Uh, CEO is clearly divided in the way Jack spends his time. Uh, certainly, as a shareholder, it would be reassuring to me if he was entirely focused on Twitter. What would you like to see? I'd like him to see them work on the things they need to do from a product and cost structure standpoint and be open, always open, to opportunities to be independent, but also to make a sale if that seems appropriate. When you joined Microsoft, you didn't get a single share. Is that true? Well, that's complicated. I had a profit share. I never had a stock option. It's written on Wikipedia. I made money on stock options, never had any. At the day we incorporated, I had eight and three quarters percentage of the company, and that's been the source of uh, my uh, ownership since then. And you still own a lot of the company today, something like 4%? I still own what I own. I, that's not a thing uh, that I disclose. And with the stock at 60, 
You just have to consider the possibilities given how good a job Satya's done. Bill Gates and Paul Allen have sold a bunch of their shares, but you've held on to yours, and you actually own more than them. That's correct. Why have you held on? I believed in myself. I ran a company I believed in, and guess what? It's worth a bunch. It's worth a bunch. Now, the full um, recognition in the marketplace of the value of the profit stream we created wasn't necessarily recognized during my tenure, but it is now being recognized in Satya's tenure. I'd say, number one, I made a great investment uh, by holding, and number two, I have a lot of loyalty. I mean, certainly when I'm working at the place, mm -hmm. if I start selling, what does that mean? It means I don't believe in the future of the company. I sort of basically believe that people who are on boards or work for companies, at least in leadership positions, they should actually have to hold all their stock. At what point do you think you might sell? That'll be a you know, decision I get to make. The longer I get out of the company, um, the more it's not mine anymore, the more I look at the value of the stock, the more we're doing philanthropically, which is a big deal, you know, these things will change. We've calculated you're worth $26 billion. Not bad. That's your calculation. How do you manage your, how do you manage your money? How do you manage your investments once you get to that level of wealth? Well, I do it pretty simply. I own Microsoft, I own some Twitter, I own the Clippers, and I own a bunch of index funds. Comparisons have been made to you and Tim Cook. Tim obviously also taking over from an iconic founder, CEO. What do you make of those comparisons? I mean, if you write it down on a piece of paper, founder, product-oriented CEO replaced by non-founder, more business-oriented CEO, the comparison is perfect. If you say most of the revenue and profit of the company was generated under my watch, yes. Tim's watch, yes. So those things are true. Uh, I think people are trying to extrapolate that too. And during the tenure, the new product assets weren't built. Mm -hmm. Certainly in my own case, I'd say, hey, we got going in the cloud, we got started in hardware, and we really built our asset in machine learning and artificial intelligence. So we were building those assets. Mm -hmm. Apple's a lot more secretive. I can't tell you what assets Tim's building or not building. Uh, the jury's out. The jury's out on, on everything. Uh, but if the worst thing anybody ever says to me is I'm being compared to a guy who's done a great job at Apple, so be it. We're on to your second act. What do you want to write in chapter two of, of Steve Ballmer? I want to have fun and make a civic contribution. The work I'm trying to do to publish all this data, I call those civic contributions. I think some of the things we can do with the Clippers can be very important civically inside the Los Angeles area. I don't want to make this sound silly, but spectator sports by itself was not really my deal. I love watching my kids play, and the Clippers is sort of more similar. I know the guys, I care. I see myself as a very energetic guy, uh, but also a very thoughtful guy, a guy who's come from being kind of shy and nerdy to a guy who's not. But the grounding part throughout that is ability to think through hard problems and hopefully make a difference. Steve Ballmer, former CEO of Microsoft, owner of the LA Clippers, thank you so much for being here on the show. It's been great to have you. It's my pleasure. Next week on Studio 1.0, one of the most powerful women at Google slash Alphabet and in Silicon Valley, YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki joins us. Google was in fact started in her garage. She opens up about the early days on the rocket ship, turning one of Google's now biggest assets into a moneymaker and working motherhood. Wojcicki has five kids. 
And if you missed the last few episodes of Studio 1.0, check out Instagram CEO Kevin Sistrom and venture capitalist Vinod Kosla. Studio 1.0 is produced by Candy Cheng, Aaron Black, and Emily Haskotsel. 